It's my uh, privilege to introduce our main speaker for the week. Uh, his name is Sandy Wilson. And Sandy served at Anuya. He then served for how many years at Second? 22 years at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. And he's now currently serving as the interim pastor at Covenant Pres in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, I have, uh, Sandy's always been one of my favorite preachers to hear. Never went to his church. I don't know him very well, um, but have listened to him a lot. And he fulfills the one requirement we have for all of our main speakers at YLT, and that is that they pastor while they preach. And so we're very, very grateful to have Sandy with us. Would you join me in welcoming Sandy Wilson? Thank you, Joey. Appreciate it. Joey, thank you so much. And although we haven't had the privilege, or I haven't, of our paths crossing a whole lot through the years, it is good to see you again, my friend. And you're looking just as youthful and energetic as ever. Your wife will be proud of you. And I told Joy, I've changed a lot. I'm surprised you recognized me when I came in. Uh, but I'm so thrilled about what the Lord has been doing through RYM through the years. And just look at yourselves. All these people who are engaged in reformed youth ministry in various parts of our country and the world, and to have you here in one place and to have people devoted like Michael and, and Joe and his band and Joey and others to serve you and encourage you and build you up for your ministry just warms the cockles of my heart. Uh, and I want you to know that I am very, very thankful for you for a number of reasons. Number one, having hired a number of church staff people through the years, maybe a hundred people in my life, one of the hardest ones to find is you guys. <laughs> so we senior ministers really value you. We know that you're rare finds, that you are committed to what you're doing. And, and the second reason that I'm honored to be among you is um, your work is so important. As Joey said a moment ago, it sometimes takes senior pastors a few years, sometimes decades to understand this. But if you do not have a vibrant ministry to preteens and teens, you do not have a vibrant ministry. It's amazing how important it is when you're ministering to this pre-adolescent and adolescent stage of life in all of its crucial, crucial dimensions. It's amazing the effect that has upon the entire church. So today and this week, I'm very honored to be in the presence of my colleague, John Fountain. John, raise your hand. John's our youth director, and he knows how I feel about this. I'm so glad that he's at Covenant Presbyterian because the ministry that he and his staff are performing affects the whole kit and caboodle. So sometimes young in ministry, solo pastors, senior pastors, don't quite get the connection. But as years go by, what you see is that Everything you're dealing with with the youth, as you all know who have experience, youth problems are not youth problems, they're family problems. And uh, we, we, we really need to get into the families. And so the youth ministry, if done correctly, is very tightly integrated with the adult ministries that are in the church. So uh, if your pastor hasn't quite got to that point in his thinking yet, believe me, if he hangs in there for a while, he will. And you hang in there, because even if he doesn't know, you know. And I want you to know how much I appreciate what you all are doing. Thank you so much, um, Arthur and Andy and Rachel, for your testimonies. How encouraging all that is. 
The last time I had a good talk with Rachel, it was in Chengdu, China, <laughs> at a dinner table. Uh, it's so good to see things going well at the Cathedral Church of the Advent. We're thankful for that and the other churches that are represented here. Well, tonight, we're going to begin a study in a wonderful chapter of the Bible, Luke chapter 10. You can turn there if you wish. And, uh, and, and you know, since we're Christians, you probably should bring your Bible. By the way, uh, it, that's another thing I appreciate about Reformed Youth Ministries is that you're not just evangelizing lost people, which you do, but you're training, you're consciously training covenant children to grow in their knowledge of the Lord. And of course you find out sometimes around their junior year in high school they were faking it all, all along and they get converted in your Bible study. Um, and, but that's, that's the way the ministry goes. We just teach, 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 pray, pray, pray. And through the ordinary means of grace, God does wonderful works, which we've heard about already tonight. So I know that RYM believes that and teaches that, and that greatly encourages me because I know that's what the church needs and it's what our youth need. And part of our use of the ordinary means of grace is to learn how to go through the Bible and to go through expositionally in all of our teaching. So I hope your senior pastor, your regular preacher, preaches expositionally. I certainly hope so because I think you come largely from Reformed churches. And so one thing I want to do this week is let's just go through expositionally. Let's just look at a text of the Bible and see what it's saying. Luke 10 is particularly helpful for us, not for the reasons that you might know Luke 10 uh, from your past studies, namely the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the wonderful story about Mary and Martha, but rather the first half of Luke 10 that we're going to examine in our time together, verses 1 through 24. And we're going to be in those verses all four evenings. And here's the reason. In Luke 10, 1 through 24, Jesus is doing some on-the-job training, which, by the way, is the best way to do your training. The best way to grow as a Christian, the best way to grow in ministry is to go do ministry. <laughs> That's what I've discovered. My, one of my old mentors used to say, Sandy, it's easy, easier to steer a moving car than to steer a parked car. <laughs> so get your car moving. And it is moving. You're in, you're in the work of the ministry. And that's a great context to grow and learn all sorts of things. This comes from Jesus. He's the master mentor. So what does he do when he's training his little seminary students? He takes them into the region of Samaria. This is the central section of Luke, as we call it, from the latter end of chapter 9 all the way up until the passion story. It's the, the big central section of Luke. And a lot of it is taking place in Samaria. So you know how despised the Samaritans were. In fact, isn't it interesting? He tells the story of the Samaritan while he's having his disciples minister in Samaria. So he takes them to the most hostile place they could possibly go. And he's going to teach them ministry in a very hostile place. And I want us to notice what he does with them. Because frankly, I think that's what he's doing with us as he trains us. And we're just going to pick up the Jesus ideas of how to be trained in ministry together. So tonight, we're going to look briefly at just the essence of being called into ministry by Jesus. What does it mean? And we'll take the first two verses. That's all we're going to do tonight. Then tomorrow night, I, I want us to look at the dangers of ministry because Jesus certainly doesn't avoid that. 
I mean, if anybody fell prey to the dangers of ministry, it was Jesus himself. Uh, it's not pleasant to end up naked on a cross with nails in your hands and your feet and a spear in your side. And so Jesus knew the dangers of ministry and he knew you would face them. So he talks very bluntly about them. We want to be blunt too tomorrow night and talk about the dangers of ministry. Then when we get to the very middle of this text, we'll see that Jesus in one verse actually gives us the essence of our ministry. What is it? What are we doing? And one of the big fault lines in a lot of people's ministries is they don't have clarity on what they're doing. And Jesus makes it clear for us. This is what we're doing. So we'll look at the essence that, that we'll get ministry clarity from Jesus. And then lastly, when we get to Thursday night, we're going to look where Jesus ends. And, you, of course, you see it in verses 17 through 24. He ends in joy. Isn't it amazing? Even through the sufferings of ministry, the whole thing ends in a bucket full of joy. So we're going to see what that's all about and how you derive joy in ministry. There's a particular way to do it. I think we'll see it from Jesus' own experience with his disciples. So that's the plan. Tonight's short, and here's the reason. You've all been traveling, and you just had a big dinner. You're likely to fall asleep on me. And it, uh, it reminds me of uh, one missions conference at Second Presbyterian Church years ago. We had one of our favorite female missionaries come back, and she was teaching the women. And there were probably about twice as many people in the room around circular tables. It was a banquet style. It was a beautiful thing with, you know, nice, the, the things that men don't do. You know, nice floral arrangements in the centerpieces of every table and using our finest silverware and all the rest. And so we had this wonderful missionary speaker, and she got up to speak. And she went on and on and on. My wife, being the senior minister's wife, was sitting at the head table, and she was sitting next to one of our distinguished elderly women leaders, who about 40 minutes into this talk, passed out. <laughs> Literally, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not, pulling, I'm not pulling your leg. She passed out. Her face hit the coconut cake, and then she fell out of her chair and rolled under the table. My wife, who happens to be blessed with a gift of mercy that will not end. I mean, I, boy, did I ever find the right woman. You know, I'm a smart aleck. She is mismerciful. She just loves people. If you know her, you know what I'm talking about. Well, my wife dove under the table. And she was trying to revive the dear woman, about 75, 80 years old, and calling her name. And then she got a glass of water. And the woman kind of came to, and Allison held her head and gave her a little sip of water. And the woman sputtered a little bit. And, then she, and meanwhile, while all this was going on, the speaker kept speaking. Just went right on. And the head table was all astir. She just kept talking. And so Allison was giving her the water, and this woman said, Is that woman still speaking? She said, <laughs> So I don't want that happening tonight. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to be brief. But look with me, please, at just two verses. Luke 10, 1 and 2. Let's look at what it means to be called by Jesus Christ into ministry. And before we do so, let's pray together. Father, we are deeply grateful for your word. You still speak to your disciples. You're in our hearts. You're in this room 
You're in the Word, and we're in you. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. All flesh is like grass, all of its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. I want you to notice several things, four things really, about these two verses. First of all this, every believer is called into ministry. Every single believer is called into ministry. Not just a few. Every single one. Secondly, I want you to notice that we're called to labor together, not by ourselves. We're called into a team ministry. That's going to be the second thing I want us to notice from the text. Thirdly, at the end of verse 1, you'll notice this. We're called to go anywhere and everywhere all the time. Anywhere and everywhere all the time. We're at his complete disposal. Then lastly, I want you to notice in verse 2, of course, that our ministry, the calling of Jesus Christ in the ministry is a calling to prayer. Okay? Now look with me at verse 1. We'll see, first of all, that the Christian mission is every Christian's mission. Every believer is called. Now why do I say that? Because here he's just talking about the 72. But let's talk about that for a moment. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72. So notice, those who are in ministry are those who are appointed by the Lord. He's the Lord of the harvest. He says so in verse 2. He says, let me tell you who to pray for, or pray to. I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And Jesus is not called Jesus here. He's not called Christ. Luke says, the Lord. That's intentional. Lord means master, the one who's in charge, the dominate, the one who is a leader, the one who has unrivaled supremacy, the Lord appointed. And Jesus says to his disciples later on in the upper room, he said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I chose you for a particular reason. I chose you to go and bear fruit. Now, there is a sense, of course, in which to be a believer in Jesus Christ, we did choose him. We all, by faith and repentance, we chose to follow him. But here's what he's saying to the disciples. There's a much bigger drama behind that. Yeah, you chose me. You want to know why you chose me? Because I gave you the power to choose me. In fact, I drew you to myself. I gave you the gift of faith. Don't boast about your faith. That was a complete gift to you. And that's the reason you chose me is because I chose you. So ultimately then... You didn't choose me. I chose you. That's what he teaches his disciples. Now this is contrary to first century rabbinical practice. In rabbinical training in the first century, you would apply to follow a rabbi just like you apply now to university. 
And of course, if you're typical as a high school junior or a senior, you're applying to Harvard, you know, until they turn you down. And then you, you keep going down until you find the place that's going to accept you. Well, it was pretty much that way in Jesus' day. You, you apply to Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai or whatever rabbi has the, the greatest profile. You want to learn under them. You want to study. And if they take you, they take you. But you apply. You, you seek admission under their tutelage. Here's what Jesus did. He switched it. He sought you. He sought all of his disciples. He went along the Sea of Galilee. He called Andrew and Peter and James and John. He called them and said, you follow me. So it's the same with you. Uh, as someone once said, all of us believers were like turtles on a fence post. If you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know that it didn't get there by itself. Somebody put it there. Well, my fellow turtles, uh, that's how you got here. Somebody put you here, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know it's by his sovereign authority that he chooses. And he appoints them. I do find that as I try to summarize what are the distinctives of a thriving Christian worker, inevitably this comes to the surface. It's one of the key four principles, in my opinion, of thriving in ministry, and that is to know yourself as a servant, to know who the master is, and to see yourself as servant. Where we get into a lot of trouble and sometimes stop thriving in ministry is when we are convinced by the world's ways, even in the church, that we have certain rights and privileges, certain entitlements, and we start demanding entitlements. Now, I'm not in favor of injustices, and I do believe that it's very appropriate for us to raise certain questions with our supervisors. But in our heart of hearts, before the Lord... We are but servants. Paul calls himself over and over again a slave, an indentured slave. And the last time I checked, servants don't write their own job descriptions. I believe masters do that. And Jesus is the master, and he writes the job description, and we're doing what he asks us to do. Now you say, how am I going to do that? Because he's not here in the flesh like, like he was with these 72. Here's the story. Sometimes we say, you know, I wish I were like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and Jesus stopped me on, you know, knocked me off my horse, made me a Christian and told me exactly what to do in ministry. I'd be so grateful. Well, he has actually told you exactly what to do. And here's what it is. Same thing he told his apostles. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. You, just like the Apostle Paul, actually got your commission for ministry at the same time you were converted. There are only two calls in the New Testament. One is to be an apostle. Those have all died. The other is to be a Christian. And so Paul had his commission to go to the Gentiles. And you weren't told that by infallible revelation. What you were told is simply go make disciples. So Paul had to figure out what nations to go to. And sometimes he missed it. He wanted to go to Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit took him off to Macedonia. He planned to go to Bithynia. Sometimes you plan stuff and the Lord changes it, but you still plan. And you're doing just what the apostle did. He knew he was going to the Gentiles, but he had to figure out the details. So do you. So what you do is you pray, you seek counsel, you read the word of God regularly, and you, here's the heart of it. 
you open your life up to him completely, say, Lord, take me, I'm your servant. When you do that, you gain Christian wisdom, which enables you to draw proper inferences from the circumstances and opportunities before you. And so many people are stumped and don't know how to enter a particular type of ministry because they never really dealt with the need for a servant's heart. And you're not getting anywhere without that. The first thing we learn when Jesus sends people out into ministry is that he does it. And we're under his orders. Now, the 72 is interesting. We don't have time to go into it, but just like the number 12, 12 disciples is very significant. 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus creating the new Israel. So obviously 12 means something. So does 70. You notice in your text, there's a little footnote that said it could have been 70, it could have been 72. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites, or when the children of, uh, of Jacob were coming to Egypt, how many were there? There were 70. There was the whole tribe of Israel. It was the whole church. Later on, when they were appointing judges or elders for all of the tribes, it was 70, which comprehended the entire tribe of Israel. So the number 70, that is Jesus, you know, Jesus had, John was his closest friend. When Jesus was dying, he said, John, my mother is now your mother. You're taking care of her. Mom, he's your son now. I mean, that's close. So John was his closest friend. Then the three, Peter, James, and John, were the triad that were really with him you know, at the Transfiguration and other places. Then he had the 12, and then he had the 70. He had these concentric circles. Well, the number 70 is loaded with significance. It just means the whole tribe. So what does it mean here? All of his disciples, everybody he had, he sent them all out. Every one of them. The Christian mission is every Christian's mission. Now, in the West, we get confused because we talk of occupational ministry. We get paid for it. It's a job. So you make a big decision to enter into ministry. And because of that, we've confused the biblical category, which is that every Christian is in ministry. Whether you're paid for it or have a job or not, that doesn't matter. Your calling is to follow Christ, not to be a youth worker. I'm not called to be a pastor. I'm called to be a Christian. And in my commitment to be a Christian, to follow Christ by Spirit-guided inference with a lot of advice from other people and prayerful consideration, it seems to me that the best way for me to serve the Lord Jesus is to enter occupational pastoral ministry. That's how I ended up here. And that's how you'll end up in occupational ministry, is that you believe it's the best way for you to advance the kingdom of God. Here's the question you've got to keep asking yourself for the rest of your life. Is your life... Your best answer to the Great Commission. If it's not, change it tomorrow. Get it done. Let's get your life so that it is your best answer to the calling of the Great Commission. Every Christian is obligated to that. And so for some of us, like you and me, it leads us into occupational. I don't call it vocational ministry because vocation comes from the Latin word calling, vocare, which means to be a Christian. So that's my vocation, is to be a Christian. My occupation is to be a pastor. But I, am, I have the occupation of pastor because in my deepest heart, I believe that's the best way for me to fulfill my vocation, to be a Christian. Now that's what we learn in the way that Jesus is operating here. He sends all the church out, okay? Now secondly, 
Notice that he sends them out together, two by two. Two by two. Let's not miss this. This is really important because I saw a statistic that I really don't think I believe, but it's been floating around for years, and so there must be some truth to it. But the statistic I saw about pastors today, 70% of them allegedly report they don't have a best friend. They don't have a close friend. These are senior pastors. Now, we know senior pastors typically have intimacy problems, you know, so, okay, we, we get that. There are ego problems, you know, in senior pastor work, and we've all probably run into it. But I have a hard time believing that figure, but nonetheless, what I don't have a hard time believing is that oftentimes we feel like we don't have good friends. I think what you see in Jesus on the job training here is if, you if you're not making good friends in ministry, you're not really working consistently with the Christian mission. Because you can't do this by yourself. A moment ago, Joey said, we're all screwed up, broken, messy. Yes. So what makes you think you can do this by yourself? <laughs> if you're really broken, don't you need help? Of course you do. I told a story in our church the other day. Uh, this is a true story. Second grade teacher, Sunday school, has started her lesson and in walked a new student, a new second grader. And you know how second graders are. They feel alienated, they don't know anybody, and so she was kind of nervous trying to help little Josh fit into the class. And then the thing was complicated when she noticed Josh did not have a left arm. He was, he was born congenitally with only one arm. And so in her mind she's thinking, oh, these kids are going to say something that hurts his feelings and... She was just walking on eggshells, the whole class. And at the very end, they had this little tradition in the second grade in her class where before they go to big people church, they do the little thing, okay, let's all do church. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up, there's the people. And so she started it, and then she realized, oh, you idiot. You are doing just what you were afraid the second graders were going to do, which is to embarrass Josh. So she just stopped red-faced and flummoxed. And she looked at Josh Right next to Josh was Catherine, second grader. And as this teacher watched her, she said to Josh, she put up her left hand to his right hand and said, Josh, let's do church together. <laughs> I love that story. Because <laughs> here's what it is. You're all one-armed at your best. And so am I. How do we ever think that we're going to be the body of Christ all by ourselves. Doesn't Paul explain this? You're an eye or a, you know, a left elbow or something, but you've got to be in the body to have the whole body of Christ ministering. He sends them out two by two because we really do need each other. And you'll find through the years, if you stay in occupational ministry, I think you'll find out that your best friends are the people you're doing ministry with. There's just a natural yoking together. When you bear the burdens of ministry together, my best friends... My closest prayer partners, they're all in occupational ministry through the years, 30, 40 years of ministry. So you'll find that it's relationally rich because you're working together in the Lord Jesus Christ. So do it two by two, and there's accountability here. When I was pastoring a Lookout Mountain Presbyterian, some of you may know the names, but one of our elders who was about 10 years older than I was Richard Hostetter, a real good friend of mine. Richard was very engaged in world missions, committed to it. Richard was also a successful lawyer. And in the mid-80s, 
uh, ladies and gentlemen, back in those days, the really hot van was one that they, they would redo a van and they would put shag carpeting in it and a little refrigerator over on the side and, you, and a TV on a swivel pivot and captain's chairs in the back. I mean, everybody, whoa, this is great. You know, you take a trip to, to, to the beach, you know, in a van like that. Well, Richard had enough money and desired to buy one of those, which he did, but his big mistake was he drove it to church. And his friend happened to be Hugh O. McClellan, Jr., who is chairman of the McClellan Charitable Foundation for missions here and around the world. Well, Hugh O. and Richard are very good friends. And so when Richard came out of church that first Sunday when he drove his nice, fancy van to church, there was a sign on the windshield. And it said... One missionary not sent. <laughs> hey, we need our friends. Sometimes with a good sense of humor, sometimes a kick in the shins, but we need friends whom we know love us enough. They'll get in our grill and give us the truth. Jesus sent them out two by two. This is no mistake. He sends you out two by two. Now, thirdly, notice in verse two, lastly, in, um, verse one, lastly, in verse one, that he sends us everywhere, every town and village where he was going to be going. Everywhere. You know, sometimes you really feel like you have been handed a job description that you had nothing to do with. God sent you into Samaria, very hostile territory that's strange to you. You're going door to door, or you got two eighth graders that are not interested in your group. You're in Samaria. Because he'll send you anywhere and everywhere, and you should expect it. And he'll send you sometimes into the under-resourced neighborhoods. And sometimes he'll take you right out of your nice North American suburban church environment and he'll send you off to Uganda to work with Arthur. He does this because when you commit to him, it's anywhere, everywhere, anytime. Some of you know the name Dr. Marion Barnes who was the president at one time of Covenant College. Dr. Barnes had been a, uh, actually his doctorate is in chemistry. He worked for the Monsanto company before he uh, became president of Covenant College. And uh, when our old missions committee chairman died at the age of 82, Mr. Hugh O. McClellan Sr., the session said, we think we need to pick a younger man to succeed Mr. McClellan. So we did. We picked Dr. Barnes, who was 81. <laughs> and <laughs> Dr. Barnes was the chairman of our committee until the Lord took him home, which wasn't a real long time later. <laughs> but I'll never forget when the chairman of our missions committee, Dr. Barnes, got up in an evening service when we had sharing time, and he said, I want you all to pray for me, especially you young folks, because I'm going to meet with my four accountability partners. Here's an 82-year-old man with four accountability partners. He said, we meet every year to decide how we're going to spend the rest of our life. Of course, the teenagers started giggling, knowing he didn't have much left. But when Dr. Barnes came back the next week after that meeting, here's what he reported to our Sunday evening worship service. He said, thank you so much for praying for me, because here's what the five of us decided, every one of us. We'll go anywhere at any time to do anything to advance the kingdom of God. 
And that's when I said, Lord, make me old like that man. That's what every Christian is called to do. We go anywhere, everywhere, anytime to advance the kingdom of God. Now lastly, you can't help but notice in verse 2 that Jesus is reminding us activists of something very important. That if you're going to be active and strategic and very involved, be first of all involved with prayer. We just have to ask ourselves, don't we? Do we speak to God about teenagers as much as we speak to teenagers about God? The Lord says, look, we've got a major problem in youth work. The fields are white unto harvest. But the youth workers are few. So what are we going to do? Let's start a promotional campaign. No. As John Calvin said about this text, when there's a shortage of ministers, get on your knees and pray. And I would say that we ourselves not only deploy ourselves into ministry, but being in the ministry as Christians, we are invested in deploying everybody else in the ministry. And how are we going to do that? There's only one way, and that's through prayer. If you can't imagine that the Red Sea would divide, just remember that Moses prayed. If you can't imagine that the Jordan River was held back and piled up so the Israelites could cross it, as the hymn writer says, with unmoistened foot, think about prayer. If you can't imagine that when Joshua was fighting an important battle and he prayed that the sun would stop and it actually stood still in the skies and gave him an extra hours of light. Just consider the power of prayer. If you've never seen a three and a half year drought ended by a prayer meeting, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19 and read about Elijah praying, Lord, reveal yourself as the true God. And he did. And if you want to know how Peter and Paul got out of the grasp of an ironclad Roman prison. It was through the people of God praying. And if you want to know how more teenagers are going to know Jesus Christ and more people are going to work with them, it's only going to happen by prayer. When the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast that demon out? He had a real simple answer. That one only comes out by prayer. And when we're dealing with the deepest spiritual realities in all the cosmos, which is what we're dealing with, do not expect that anything will really happen because we're clever or good-looking or have great programs. It'll come because we're begging the Lord of the harvest to glorify himself in the ministry of leading young people to Christ. That's what we're learning about the call to ministry. And my question is, do you sense the call in your heart? Are you answering the call from your heart? Does he have you as a slave, a happy slave? Does he have you as someone who's ready to go anywhere and do anything to advance the kingdom of God? If he does, he's got someone he's ready to work with in a very powerful way. Let's pray. Father, we... 
Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for making us your disciples so that we with open ears can listen to the same words you give to the apostles 2,000 years ago and know that they're for us. We pray that you help us to hear with believing hearts and repentant wills. And would you encourage all of us this week to draw near to you and to enjoy you and to hear your clarion voice again in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.